0: I was like so pumped to come and, and bring this teaching today. Uh, I'm going to do a live demo of phylacteries to fill in. And I'm uh, going to show you what that looks like. And I did a remix of Come to the Church in the Wildwood. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing my, my debut um, hit single, Izzy's Remix. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Um, I have a, some really rich stuff here. I thought I would tell you guys something, just so you know. Uh, in general, I try and keep my teachings to 60 minutes, okay? So, uh, you know, from when I start to when I finish, it'll be about 60 minutes generally. And I don't think I ever mentioned that, but if, if it helps for some of us to just know what time frame we're working with here, so you know how long before we get to eat, you know, have own egg, then uh, that's, that's generally the time frame. <laughs> um, so this teaching has 60 minutes. Uh, let's, let's look at the Acts, Acts passage together first. acts so uh we were we were watching for some of the hallmarks of the early yeshua movement that we see loud and clear in acts chapter six uh the first one that jumps out is in verses three five and ten of Acts six it says that these men who were in the leadership of the original messianic community in jerusalem were full of the Ruach HaKodesh. They were full of the spirit of holiness. And it says that numerous times. So that's the first thing that jumps out at us. And it seems like perhaps they had a a new level of experience of this than what they had in their pre-Yeshua lives. That's that's the impression I get. Uh, Number two, in verses 3 and 10, we see that wisdom was a hallmark of the early Yeshua movement. Stephen, it says in verse 10, spoke with a wisdom that was irrefutable. His opponents couldn't cope with the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Uh, Number three, in verse five, we read that Stephen was full of faith. So faith was a hallmark of the early disciples. Uh, Number four, in uh, verse eight, we read that grace was something that was very evident In the lives of these believers Stephen was full of grace And in the same verse we read number 5 That he was also full of power So these are the five things that jump out at us From this passage These were hallmarks of the early disciples of the Master This was like uh, There was one time in my life When I would have have said This is the normal Christian life (laughs) The normal life of the believer uh, Full of the Holy Spirit Full of a wisdom that opponents cannot cope with uh, full of a faith that is robust, that, uh, that sees supernatural things accomplished, that, uh, that really makes people mad. Uh, full of grace and full of power. Their lives were fill, f- full of these dynamics. And uh, it's, it's notable that when we receive that filling of the spirit of holiness at the hands of the Master Yeshua, all of those other things are are are, uh, the byproducts of it. When we're filled with the Spirit, we are filled with wisdom. Why? Because He is the Spirit of wisdom. Uh, When we're filled with the Spirit, we are full of faith. Why? Because He is the Spirit of faith. When we're filled with the Spirit, we're full of His grace. I I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplications on the people of Israel. It says in Zechariah in reference to the end of days. Uh, and of course he is also the uh, Ruach Gevurah. He, he is the spirit of power that mantled the Mashiach and that, that, uh, that is available to us. So I, I want to take a second at the very beginning of my talk and just ask Abba for that. For us as individual disciples, for us as a congregation, um, something I, I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that the Father delights to give good gifts to his children. And Yeshua specified you know if, if me as an, an Abba like if I love to shower tears with nice toys and, and fun stuff and, and, and good things how much more does our Abba in heaven delight to shower us with the Holy Spirit when we ask him So I'd like to, I'd like to just pray and, and ask for that for a moment uh, Abba Father thank you that ye, your Holy Spirit and the byproducts of your Holy Spirit are readily available and Father I look at my life and I believe that There is more room For more of what you have More of what the early believers lived in And Abba Father We ask you this morning For ourselves as individuals and families uh, For ourselves as a congregation here That you would fill us Father On a daily basis With your Ruach HaKodesh Your Spirit of Holiness Father That you would fill us with your wisdom Wisdom that will enable us to communicate your message to the world around us Whether it be other believers and helping them understand the foundations of our faith, Father And the Jewishness of your Son Or uh, or communicating the gospel of salvation to non-believers, Father We ask you for that wisdom We ask you, Abba, Father, for that faith that overcomes the world That faith that the Master exhibited May we be a people who are full of faith, Father Full to overflowing I want to have a contagious faith, Abba I ask you for that uh, Father for grace we, we thank you for your grace on our lives we read about how there's a greater grace how there was much grace on that ori- original um, Messianic community in Jerusalem Father we pray that that much grace that greater grace would be on us too as we humble ourselves before you today and every day and finally Abba we also ask you for the power of your spirit on our lives to enable us to be witnesses for Mashiach who can accurately represent him who can reflect your glory to the world around us and to the body of Messiah, Father. We ask you for this, and we thank you that you are going to answer this prayer because you delight to. Thank you that you are going to take us higher, to a higher level, like these, like these early believers, like Stephen, Livda Abba. And uh, we pray this, Father, not only for ourselves as a congregation, but for the body of Messiah here in PA, for your people across this province and country, um, for Messianic believers especially around the world and in Israel. And we thank you for it in Yeshua's name. Amen yes the, the, the scriptures are so practical aren't they you know, as I was reading this I was thinking I want this to be practical I want this to be something experiential for us okay, I'm going to give you two theses okay I want you to wherever your your on switches for your critical apparatus I want you to go and flick that switch okay critical apparatus on I'm going to give you two theses here thesis one Yeshua came to destroy the temple and the sacrificial system he came to abolish it and the early believers were against the temple and the sacrificial system that is thesis one okay? thesis two Yeshua came to alter the customs which Moses handed down to the Jewish people okay? Yeshua came to accomplish something whereby the Torah would be rendered null and void whereby the customs that were handed down through Moses would no longer apply to the Jewish people, would become irrelevant would be to use the slang, done away with and Furthermore, the early believers were against the customs that Moses handed down to the Jewish people. Okay? That's Thesis 2. So you got that? The first one is about Yeshua and the early church and their stance towards the temple and the sacrificial system. The second thesis is about Yeshua and the early church and their attitude towards the Torah. Now, how many of you have heard these assertions before? How many of you have heard these theses? And sometimes it's not something that's verbally said. But it's something that is insinuated by our attitudes and our lifestyles as believers. This this can sometimes be the case. And I think when the when the Jewish people succeed in rebuilding the temple, which they will do in our generation, then we're gonna then we might see some of these latent theses come rise up in full force in uh, the body of Messiah around the world. Okay, so you've all heard these assertions, right? Okay, this is what mainstream pop theology and your average Bible college or seminary, and your average pulpit, has to say about why Yeshua came, and it's what, the, what it has to say about the stance of the early church towards the temple and the temple system, and the Torah. But let me ask you, what does the historical record say? And Greg, we're tracking today already, aren't we? Acts chapter 6, verse 13. Let's read this, okay? We're Bible believers. This is the book of Acts. We want to believe this. Acts six thirteen. They put forward false witnesses. Everybody say False. false. Who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the Torah? For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Yeshua, there's Yeshua the Nazarene again, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. End of quote. Now, that was those were the words of false witnesses. What that means is Stephen did not speak incessantly against this holy place and the Torah. And he did not say that Yeshua will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down. (laughs) These are two of the oldest false charges in the book. And somehow or other, through our selective reading of the Bible and our interpreting it through the grid of our own pet doctrines and theology that a lot of us grew up with, we've come to believe these charges. We actually believe that Stephen and the early believers and Yeshua himself were against the Torah, that they were against the temple system, that they, they believed there was no place for these things in the life of the believer because those were Old Testament and they lived in the New Testament. Now, no, that was not the case. It, it just makes me, it, it, it floors me. Like, how, how could the, the spirit who deceives the whole world How could the one who is the father of lies have tricked almost all of us in the body of Messiah into believing the very false charges that were leveled against Stephen? But that's changing. Messiah is bringing his truth to the forefront and he is awakening in in the body of Messiah and in the academic world. He's awakening people to the fact that the early believers loved the Torah. There was a place in their lives for the Torah. They weren't against the temple system. In fact, that was the very fabric in which they prayed. That was the very structure in which they worshipped. So things are changing, but you know, when we look at church history for the last 17, 1800 years, it's been a very tragic story of how we fell for the false charges. And thank God, that is changing, and we are a voice for that. So let's, uh, let's look at a couple other things here, and in Acts Uh, I'll give you I'll give you an insight that will help us understand Paul better Acts 6 verse 1 it talks about how there are two main groupings in the early Messianic community in Jerusalem and uh, this was probably reflective of the broader Jewish world in the second temple era Acts chapter 6 verse 1 talks about Hellenistic Jews everybody say Hellenists and it talks about Hebrew Jews everybody say Hebrew okay so these were all Jewish people there were no actually there were no non-jews among them. Uh, there lists one man who was a proselyte Which means he was a convert to judaism. He came from a gentile background But there were no non-jews among them, but there, was, there were two main uh, there were two main types There was your hellenists and your hebrews now th- these are basically linguistic and cultural Distinctions here hellenists spoke Greek probably as their mother tongue uh, They would have read the Septuagint the Greek translation of the the Tanakh the Hebrew Bible And uh, then the Hebrews, they were the more uh, old-school, traditional Jews. They read the Torah in the original language. Uh, They were probably more connected with that original tradition that came down from Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly. And uh, as you can see, there was something of a disconnect between the two groups i'm sure that they were close together but sometimes on an organizational level it looks like they had some problems Anyway, this helps us understand something about paul paul said paul described himself in several of his his ep- epistles but in his uh, letter to the congregation in, in philippi in chapter three verse five he says that he was a hebrew of hebrews paul was the quintessential hebrew what does this mean it means that he was from the Hebrew school. He wasn't from the Greek school that spoke Greek as their first language, that referenced the philosophical teachings of Philo and Alexandria, Egypt, that uh, read predominantly from the Septuagint. Paul was a Hebrew, which means Hebrew was his first language. He read the scriptures in Hebrew. This was his background. This was the gr- his grid, his theological grid. So uh, that gives us an understanding of Paul. Unfortunately, there have been some misunderstandings of Paul, if you can believe that. Some people have suspected that he uh, was—he was predominantly Greek. That he thought in Greek terms. That that was how he communicated. That um, his his main frame of reference was Greek philosophy. And uh, as we learn today, such was not the case. Uh, Moving on, in Acts chapter six, verse seven it says the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the Ptolemy deem, the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the Kohenim, the priests, were becoming obedient to the faith and uh, resigning from their jobs. <laughs> Wrong. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't say the priests resigned from their jobs after coming to faith in Yeshua. And this is, this is a critical point. This is a very critical point. It teaches us that the early believers did not see the Torah-based sacrificial system as being in conflict with their new messianic faith and Yeshua's atonement in any way. What that tells me is that neither should we. When that when that when that temple is rebuilt in Israel, we want to follow the example set by those early believers. And we want to be leaders in the body of Messiah a voice in the body Messiah to that end also, to help other people understand what's going on in Israel. When that temple is rebuilt, when the animal rights extremists all over the world are going berserk, when there is international condemnation from the UN on Israel for rebuilding the Holy Temple on the Holy Temple Mount, what are we going to be saying? What is the body of Messiah going to be saying? Are we going to be accurate representatives? Or are we going to be falling for the, far, for the false charges that have been leveled against the early believers from the first century? Maybe we can help people understand when that time comes. So that's why I'm talking about this. This is, this is very practical. This is going to be a major issue in the near future. In... Uh, Chapter 7, verse 38 of the book of Acts. Let's talk for a second about nomology. Does anyone know what nomology is? The nomos is uh, the Greek term for the law, the Torah, right? Uh, nomi. You can hear nomi in there, repetition of the law. Um, that would be an example. So your nomology is your theology of the Torah. It's how you understand the law of God. I actually have never encountered that term before. I coined it. So I, I hope that... Uh, I hope that can be okay with you all. But I think it's a good term, nomology. So anyway, let's talk about that for a second. What was the nomology of Stephen? He was a hero of the faith. The first man who laid down his life for Mashiach. Who died a premature and violent death for his faith. In Acts 7 verse 38, this is what he has to say. About the Torah. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the messenger who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with their fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. So, two things there jump out at us. Number one, Moshe received living oracles, i.e., the revelation of Torah, to pass on to who? Number two, yes, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish world of that time, and to us today. The uh, Greek term there for oracles is basically just words. It's translated as oracles because it sounds... I don't know why. I'm not going to pretend I know. But uh, I don't know. When I hear a word like oracles, I think of like some kind of ocean crustaceans. Or like some organ of my body or something. I don't know. Like the term oracle, it just doesn't do it for me. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just not a word that people... I don't know. Like if, if you like tell... So, let's say you tell the cashier or the gas attendant or something like, Yeah, I... So have you received any oracles from God lately? It's just, I don't know. We just don't talk like that, right? But the, Hebrew, the, the Greek word there is basically the word for words. So what he's saying is, Moses received living words to pass on to you. That was what he, what he received at Mount Sinai. Is that our understanding of the Torah? Do we, do we open those first five books of the Bible and say, wow, this is alive. These are living words. This stuff is jumping off the page at me. This stuff is leaping with the very uncreated life of Elohim, of God Himself. Unfortunately, sometimes the Torah gets a bad rap today. Sometimes we don't talk about it like Stephen. Sometimes we say stuff like, Well that's all dead. You know, the law, that's a thing of death. Um, those words bring death. It's better to just stay away from that. Just stay in the New Testament. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we I don't think we in this room say that, but you know, I'm a part of the body of Messiah. We are a part of the body of Messiah. So, you know, I can say we. Sometimes we say stuff like that. And I just think, "Man, haven't we read the New Testament? Haven't we read Stephen? Haven't we read Paul?" These are living words. And I want, to, I want to share something else with you along those lines from a traditional Jewish sources. Uh, look, at the, look at the blessing that we say after the reading of the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has blessed, and planted eternal life, faye within us. That was a, a blessing, a bracha that Stephen said probably thousands of times in the course of his life. After... after he would be at synagogue, and seven people would go up to read the Torah from the bima. This is the bracha that they would say: "Blessed are You who has planted ha'eolam within us." And all they had was the revelation of the Torah. And according to Stephen, that was living words. And I'll give you one more example. This is my beloved Siddur, my Jewish prayer book. We've talked in the past about how the core of the prayer service, one of the most ancient prayers that was developed by Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly approximately 2,400 years ago, is the Shemona Esrei, the 18 blessings. And uh, the last blessing, I love this. Here, I'm going re- to read it to you in Hebrew and then translate as I go, okay? Sim shalom, establish peace, tova uvracha, chen v'chesed uh, goodness and blessing, favor and grace and Compassion, Alinu V alkois Rail Amecha on us and on all your people Israel. Barchenu Avinu, bless us our Father, Kulanu Kad, all of us is one. Borpanacha with the light of your face, Ki Vanacha, Natata Lanu, Adunayalohenu, because uh, with the light of your face you have given us, Lord our God, Torat Khaim Vahavat. You gave us Torah Chaim. You gave us a living Torah. You gave us a Torah of life. Teachings of life. Living teachings. And uh, Ahavat Chesed. And the love of grace. The love of grace. vrachamim vchayim vshalom v'tov And then it says, And uh, you gave us the love of grace and righteousness and blessing and compassion and life and shalom. This, this is, the, this is a, a selection from the com- concluding prayer of the Shemona Esrei. This, this is a prayer that Stephen and uh, the early believers prayed several times a day. This is a prayer that observant Jews today pray several times a day. And it's, just, it's interesting that Stephen was so connected, wasn't he? You know, he understood that the Torah was a Torah Chaim, that it was a Torah of life. It was living teaching. Wow. So, you know what? It's okay to have an Old Testament revival. (laughs) It's okay to have a Pentateuchal revival. We are having a Pentateuchal revival. And it's also a Pentecostal revival. It's the original Pentecostal revival of uh, the revelation of God that was given at Pentecost at Mount Sinai. And I'm going to talk more about that very soon here. Okay, let's look at one more phrase from Acts 7, verse 38. Uh, Stephen says... This is the one Referring to Moshe Who is in The congregation In the wilderness Together with the messenger Who was speaking to him On Mount Sinai So Stephen referred To the people of Israel After the exodus from Egypt At the historical point Of the giving of the Torah As the congregation In the wilderness Guess what that Greek word is Ekklesia Everybody say Ekklesia in the wilderness in the wilderness Now I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be sharing with you my uh, upcoming hit single um, in just a moment. But I just want to wanna point out a couple of things to you about it first to give you some background. It's notable, and I'm just going to read you what I posted on Facebook yesterday. I posted a note about this. It's notable that when Ecclesia turns up in the New Testament in reference to the Jewish people, as in this instance, it's translated as congregation. But when Ecclesia turns up in reference to congregations of Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Yeshua, it's translated as church at best this inconsistency on the part of the translators is well inconsistent at worst it serves to reinforce the chasm between believers in yeshua and their jewish roots and it muddies the clear waters of the apostolic scriptures with what the translators of the king james version called old ecclesiastical words okay congregation is a a word that actually means something in english it's a gathering of people Uh, a congregation of people the term church is an ecclesiastical word Uh, it's used exclusively in reference to a certain type of expression of believer and more often actually to a building like the one that we're in right now it it induces some confusion quite frankly anyway uh, most folks believe that the ecclesia was born on Pentecost and if we take Stephen's words in Acts 7 seriously then they're right the Ecclesia was born on Pentecost. But it wasn't the Pentecost after Mashiach's ascension when the Holy Spirit was poured out. The Ecclesia was born on the Pentecost after the Exodus from Egypt when God gave the Torah to Israel. At least that's what Stephen thought. That's notable. Stephen in reference to the people of Israel receiving the Torah called them the church in the wilderness. The Ecclesia in the wilderness and when our translators translate that as church in some places and congregation in the other, it just it reinforces this, this false dual covenant thio- theology or uh, replacement theology or so many dangerous ideas that did not exist in the minds of the early believers. Uh, it's cool that this comes up this week because in our uh, Torah reading, in Deuteronomy 9.10 and 10.4, 10, Moses refers to the day of the giving of the Torah when the voice of the Almighty audibly thundered over several millions of witnesses, he referred to it as the day of the congregation, Yom Hakahal. So Stephen was getting this term straight out of the Torah. He read his Bible. You can tell. So anyway, having said that, I'm going to uh, read you my remix of this uh, of this song. I don't know. Does anyone here sing bass? You know, often when they sing this this uh, song, someone in the background sings. Come, 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 come. I don't, have any of you actually heard, like, this song? The Church in the Wild? Okay. Yeah, that's Okay, so here, I'm going to sing it to you. <clears throat> oh, come to the church in... I don't think I can sing it. Well. Oh, oh, come to the church in the wilderness. Come to the church of Israel. No faith is so dear to my childhood than the Ecclesia of Israel. How sweet on a clear Sabbath morning to listen to the clear singing Shema. Its tones so sweetly are calling for the church to return. Torah they lie close by the church in the valley lies that I once believed as well such as Jesus did away with the Torah and on Shabbat it's okay to buy and sell they're, by, they're close by the side of anti-Semitism. Round the tree where Marcion is entombed, the anti-Torah gra- crowd will go in endless circles, while the rest go meet their Jewish bridegroom. Thank you. Do you like to sing that last verse with the first verse again with me? So it's, Oh, come to the church in the wilderness, come to the church of Israel. No faith is so dear to my childhood than the ecclesia of Israel. Now, here, let's get someone to sing bass. Come, come. How do you want to do that? Come. You have to sing pretty low. Here, what's, are you going to be our bass, Mike? How low can you? Okay. Um, okay, we'll just do it like that. Oh, oh, come to the church in the wilderness. Come to the church of Israel. No faith is so dear to my childhood than the ecclesia of Israel. <laughs> Thanks. I had a kick writing that yesterday, I have to admit. Um, Yeah, yeah, if you compare the two, I tried to base it on the original. But I tweaked it just enough that it would be true. Okay. um, We are going to look at the Torah now. If you want to turn there with me. Devarim. Deuteronomy. Um, let's Let's do the live phylacteries demo first. I think that would be cool. Uh there, there I have actually five points of evidence here suggesting that the master himself bind to fill in and that he did it in the traditional Jewish manner. We're gonna look at that in a second. Maybe I'll get him on and then I'll talk about that. That's what we'll do. But uh let's just look for a second uh where it says to do the actually do that. Um, Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse eighteen. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen says you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And bind them. Tie them as a sign on your hand. And uh, let them be as frontals on your forehead. And then it says, talk about them t- Teach them to your sons. Talk about them while you're, while you're at home and when you're traveling on the road and when you go to bed and when you get up. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So anyway, um... Some, some of this we're really great at. I mean, the heart of this, right, is getting us talking about the Word. And, uh, you know, we as the broader body of Christ, that's something that we do on a regular basis. We, we love the Word, we talk about it on a regular basis. But when it comes to some of the literal applications of these commands, it's something that we haven't, we haven't done as much. It's something that we're not very familiar with. Sometimes maybe it even seems a little strange. I mean, really. If you've ever seen pictures of Orthodox Jews with their tefillin on, they kind of look like tough Jewish bikers or something. You know what I mean? Like you you got the black leather and you're all tied up and the big beard, you know? It's kind of something that Orthodox Jews and bikers often have in common is like the big beard and the black leather. You know, it's, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes the Harley drivers have those cool little helmets. They almost look like big fortified keepers or something. I never thought of this before. I'm just having a like a, a flash of revelation coming through here. Okay. Um, anyway, so I, I'll 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 show you my uh, to fill in. We'll talk for a minute about what they represent, and then I'll and then I'll tell you why I think you should. Are there any other parallels between Orthodox Jews and bikers that you can think of? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay. So hopefully I can, I can just do that from this on here. So uh, in the Torah, these are actually called totafot. Can everybody say totafot? Yeah. And that's the word that's translated as frontlets or frontals, whatever. And uh, it's the word that is translated in Greek as phylacteries. Okay? So the original Torah term is totophote It's translated in Greek as phylacteries. And uh, most most Christians would know these as phylacteries if they recognize them at all. And uh, I, I, I have an aversion to the term phylacteries for, two, for several reasons. Number one, it's not the original Uh, term in the Torah it's not even close Uh, number two the Greek term actually means charms or amulets the Greeks saw the observant Jews wearing these things and they said oh it must be some kind of charm or some kind of amulet to ward off evil spirits or whatever right And we know that such isn't the case Um, for the last 2500 years or so the Jewish people have been calling these tefillin It's it's actually an Aramaic term if you hear in on the end of the word that's Aramaic plural right so uh and uh, the Hebrew word for prayer is tefillah. Can we all say tefillah? Yeah, so tefillah is prayer. Tefillin is prayers. It's like prayer boxes, you know. You put these things on when you pray, basically. So I ha- there are two of them. One goes on the arm and one goes on the forehead. I'm a southpaw, so uh, I actually have a backward set. Most, uh, most Jews, because they're right-handed, will, will tie it on their right arm. But because I'm a left-hander, I tie it on my right arm. So I had to order a special set. I'm special. So, this one goes on the arm. And uh, there's some traditional prayers that you say when you put these on. This is a demo. This isn't actually in uh, accordance with... This isn't to obey the mitzvah, so I'm not going to say the bracha, but it's basically like, it's basically like, bless you, Lord of God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to bind to Phelan. Well, it literally says, like to lay them or to rest them upon yourself, which has some interesting connotations. So, you know, this one, uh, this one here kind of annoying having my shirt stuck like that. Anyway, this one here, uh, this is the tefillin shell, Yad. It's the, it's the one for the arm. This cool little box here actually has the four passages from the Torah where uh, tefillin are, 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 are uh, talked about. One of them also has the Shema. So the Shema is kind of like the whole point of this, right? You're binding the Shema on your body. So uh, that, will, that will go on my bicep like this. And then I tie it around. And there, there, there are certain prayers that are traditionally prayed when this is done. I actually kind of pray my own liturgy that I composed. I like to just call on Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my forefathers. And uh, as you can see, you tie this leather strap around three times. It's like it represents that, that tri-bond of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is their God, and he is my God. And then, uh, then the, the strap continues to go around the forearm um, seven times. Seven is a significant number, of course. It's a, a number of the covenant bond. And uh, I'm got, getting bound in these, into these things right now. Um, uh, what's the question? Yeah, yeah. These are Christian to fill in because the sake ones are considerably larger. See, we're, we're more humble, so we were smaller ones. <laughs> Right on, Mike. Yeah, I mean, this also represents the seven branches of the menorah and the anointing. Uh, If you tie it in a certain way, it spells Yeshua. I I won't show you that one today, but my brother Christopher actually developed that. And sometimes I'll I'll tie it in the way that spells Yeshua. Because I'm like, I am ardently devoted to my rabbi. I will tie his name on my arm because I'm obsessed with him. I have a healthy obsession. Right? So that's kind of the idea. Um, then it goes around the, the middle finger, which in the Jewish culture represents, it's like, uh, you know, your left index finger that you wear your wedding ring on? That's the idea in the Jewish culture. So it goes my, around my middle finger, and then it goes around three more times. Like And uh, the passage from Hosea is said, where it says, <laughs> It says, like, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me. And uh, I don't even know it in English. This is embarrassing in um, like righteousness and justice and, uh, and like uh, in grace and in mercy um, and uh, in, in faithfulness like in faith and you will know Yahweh that's what it says and then it goes around the arm like that and with a little bit of odaf, a little bit of leftover that I have I tie it like this see so I'm like and Actually, uh, I'll tell you something. Generally you would do the first half of this and then you put the head one on I'm just giving you the full rundown for this one, right? So that's that's what it looks like on the hand and uh, there, there are all sorts of really cool symbolisms in these things. I don't want to get it I'm not going to get into all the details today. I just want to give you a a little representation and uh, Generally when you take these you give them, a little, give them a little kiss not because you really feel any great affection to cowhide and black paint Right, it's just a, it's what it represents. Like these actually contain the holy name of God. Wow, these contain, as we read this morning from our Chinese brother, this letter, the, his precious word. Right, so you give him a little kiss as a sign of affection and respect quite often. And it goes on the forehead. Yeah, yeah, kiss the sun. That's a great representation. And then these are long. They represent, um, like, the, his righteousness and his justice flowing down like mighty waters. It's the idea. And, uh, you know, I wear a wedding ring. Um, in a Western culture, if you are taken, you wear a wedding ring as a sign that you're taken, right? And uh, this is like the original biblical way of saying, I'm taken. Mashiach redeemed me with his blood. I, my life is not my own. This is my in-your-face wedding ring, saying that I'm married to God, right? And uh, there's a lot of symbolism to these. Okay, like I'm a kinesthetic type of person, right? Uh, for me, when I bind my tefillin on like this, here, I'll get my tallit on too, just for the, uh, the full effect. Usually when you have your tefillin on, you wear your tallit. Um, it's just, I have to admit, wearing a heavy tallit on a hot day today, it feels somewhat illogical. So anyway, but I'll put it on for this. Um, see, when, when you bind them on, like it, it's like you're locked in, right? You're locked in with the Almighty. Um, there, there, are some interesting, there are some interesting traditional rules associated with the film. Like when you're wearing them, you don't go to the bathroom. Um, you, you, you refrain from small talk because when you're wearing them, you're in a very serious state of mind, right? It's like covenant focus. And uh, it's, it's a time to study the Torah, to, to pray, to, uh, to engage in holy activities. So for me anyway... Putting these on, it helps me focus, right? It helps me walk in to those holy activities to which I'm called. And uh, what, what could this represent? Taking the Torah and tying it to my arm, to my bicep. Yeah, well, to me what it represents is like, I am committed to carry out the Word of God with my actions, symbolized by my arm. Uh, This doesn't work for me because I'm a lefty, (laughs) but but right-handed people will wear it on this bicep Which is close to the heart. It's like saying I want to I want to uh, impress these words on my heart Right, okay, and then what is the one? What is the one on the head symbolize? Thinking about his word right having it on my mind at all times Torah study that's the idea so you know to fill in what these symbolizes is that that covenant sign it explicitly says in the Torah this is the sign of the covenant um, they also symbolize ardent devotion to Mashiach um, they represent like a passionate dedication to carry out the mission that he has given us in his word that's the idea behind Defilin and uh, I'll share with you five areas of evidence that I think suggest quite strongly that Yeshua actually wore these things let's look at those Uh, Number one, we are commanded in the Torah multiple times to tie these things, these words as a sign on your arm and let them be frontals on your forehead. Yeshua did the Torah perfectly, therefore Yeshua must have done this. Uh, Number two, this was the way the Pharisees interpreted this command. And in terms of application of the Torah, Halakha, Yeshua from all appearances was a Pharisee when it comes to the written word. We know this because, number one, Pharisees were very strict about only eating with other Pharisees. And Pharisees would readily eat with Yeshua. Uh, number two, Yeshua said in Matthew 23 that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses; therefore, all that they tell us, we should do and observe. We know Yeshua wasn't talking here about the oral law and rabbinic additions such as niti l'Yadayim, the washing of hands. So we conclude that Yeshua here must have been talking about the Pharisees' interpretation of the Written Torah and uh, the way to fill in are done today is the way that the Pharisees, and therefore, by influence Yeshua, did them in the Second Temple era. Uh, to build on that, number three, uh, this way of, of uh, binding these things, it says in the Torah, it wasn't only limited to the Pharisees. Even the radical Essene sect from the Qumran community bound to fill in in this way, which means it was simply the commonly accepted traditional Jewish application of this command. So there, uh, from, from all indications in... Uh, history and in archaeology This was the way to do it in the second temple era even though there were quite a quite a few different Jewish sects um, well actually when I was in Israel and uh, Went to the Museum of the Shrine of the Book. I got to see a set of tiny Tefillin that they that they unearthed at the Qumran community and uh, They looked exactly like these except that they were about a quarter of the size maybe half the size They were tiny. (laughs) So, you know, so when it comes to the Master's um, word of advice, don't broaden your tefillin for the sake of appearance, I think that did kind of happen historically. I got one of the smaller sets. You can get ones that are twice as big. But what we see from the Qumran community is theirs were like little tiny boxes. Okay. Uh, Number four, Yeshua was a traditional Jew. He was raised by Yosef, who was a traditional Jew. That means that Yosef would certainly have trained his young adopted son in the mitzvot, in the commandments. And one of those mitzvot is binding to in It's unthinkable that when Yeshua tried to teach young that when Yosef tried to teach young Yeshua to bind to filin, Yeshua would have resisted because Yosef was apparently doing it all wrong. It says that Yeshua grew up in subjection to his parents and it's guaranteed that Joseph, as a righteous man, would have taught his son this in addition to the other commandments. Um, so there's the last piece of I- uh, evidence is a historical reference. Uh, 400 years after the ascension of Mashiach, Eusebius writes in Panarian 29. He was one of the early historians of the Roman Catholic Church, newly founded Roman Catholic Church, and uh, he writes about the sect of the Nazarenes, the literal descendants of the first generation of Yeshua's disciples. These guys were still around. They were still a, ju- a sect of Judaism. They were the literal descendants of the early Jerusalem church. And what did he write about them? He writes in Panarian 29, they continued to live Torah observant, traditional Jewish lives. And they actually didn't differ from other Orthodox Jews in anything except that they believed in Yeshua as the Messiah. So we have strong evidence there that not only Yeshua, but also the early apostles and the early Yeshua movement clear on into the 4th century, continued to um, apply the Torah in a traditional way and uh, bind to fill-in in a, traditional, in a traditional way. So, in saying that, I'm not, uh, I just, I just want to say I'm not pressuring anyone to do this. I'm not pressuring anyone to do it in this way. I'm just sharing with you uh, hopefully a, a snapshot of history, um, some of my understanding on this, and uh, hopefully it'll give us a, more, a clearer picture of Yeshua. Can you Can you just picture Yeshua getting up early in the morning and taking his his tautafot, his, his tefillin, and, and binding those things and praying to his Abba early in the morning. Maybe he would go climb, a, climb one of those hills in the Nazareth area or go out into the desert somewhere and, and he would do this. So if, you're, if, you're, if your vision of Christ isn't of a Christ with phylacteries on, then your vision of Christ isn't, it can still uh, be more fleshed out. It can still be fuller, right? So How's that? Um, That's a good question. Did they wrap them in prayer? Uh, Only in prayer. Um, Some ultra-observant Jews in the Second Temple era wore them all the time. They would take them off except, you know, when they had to go to the bathroom or whatever. Um, And they were considerably smaller so they could do that. (laughs) But most, from what I understand, your average citizen of ancient Judea would generally only wear them at times of devotion or prayer. No. Only if you, like, crank them really tight. That's a good question. Did women wear these? Actually, there are, uh... Who was it? Oh, it was either Rashi or the Rambam. I can't remember off the top of my head. But one of the, like, world-class, famous Jewish commentators from the medieval era had daughters. And his daughters were very observant. And it actually said of them that they would sometimes bind tefillin. Yeah. And that was okay. So, uh... Generally, the traditional Jewish understanding is, if it's a time-related mitzvah, like tefillin, then then Jewish males are obligated and Jewish females are—it's optional. And uh, the reason being, women have a lot of demands on their time that men don't have. I mean, you got babies hanging off of your skirt and needing to nurse and all of this stuff. And I mean, man, women—women have a big enough job just raising children. That's a big mitzvah right there, right? And uh, it's also and it's also observed in uh, Jewish understanding that we guys, sometimes we're just not as spiritual and we just don't get it. Sometimes we need these like, these props, hands-on activities, like kinesthetic stuff that can really help us to focus and lock in and, and get into this thing. And I, that's very true of me. Well, when it comes to the traditional Jewish understanding, they have me pegged. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, what I know from in that area any other questions right actually I'll tell you an interesting historical detail about that in uh, in the uh, in the very early sets of tefillin they did have the Ten Commandments in them also but there was a certain heretical sect that arose in Judaism that said that all of the Torah was done away with except for the Ten Commandments and so to counter that they actually removed the Ten Commandments from Tefillin just to, uh, just to emphasize that the Torah is as indivisible as God is. Either you take the whole thing or you leave the whole thing. And interestingly enough, that isn't just a traditional Jewish idea. Um, Yeshua's brother, Yaakov, James, was also strong on that. Remember, he said, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. The Torah is a, it's a unit. I'm going to give you a couple comments from uh, the rest of this parsha. And uh, I hope you enjoyed our live phylacteries demo <laughs> yeah have any of you ever uh, ever seen to fill in an action before like that huh. to fill in you know they they're a little pricey actually well depending on what your definition of pricey is that can be relative I remember when I first got my I said I was so pumped about it I was on a construction crew and I was telling one of my coworkers, and I told him how much they cost and he was like you paid that much for those and I was like yeah Like my relationship with God means everything to me. It's the most valuable thing that I possess. In fact, it's going to cost me my whole life—not just a couple hundred dollars or whatever, right? And then I said, like, how much would you pay for, uh, you know, big uh, widescreen plasma TV? So like, this guy was a believer, right? But I think he was a little sloppy. And I was like, well, so like, how much would you pay for a big TV to entertain you? I mean, what, what, what's, your, what's your discipleship worth to you? What, what is uh, answering the call of Messiah worth to you, you know? And um, he, was, he was receptive to that concept. It made sense. Okay, um, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy. I'll just take you on a little guided tour over the, the Parsha and draw out a couple elements that I think are particularly applicable to us as disciples. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. Hey, how are you guys doing with these chairs? Pretty comfy? You like the new soft chairs? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Are, do we have a thumbs up for next week with uh, with the comfy chairs? Right on. Okay. <laughs> Good. So in Deuteronomy 7:22, it says, "Yahweh your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You won't be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you." So the Hebrew term there for little by little is meat meat. Can we all say meat meat? He's like, you know, a little at a time. Um, You remember where it says in the book of Isaiah, um, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here and a little there? Guess what that term is? Me'at, me'at. Right? A little here, a little there. Now, this is is what I understand to be a spiritual principle. And actually, I I think think, uh, this must be something in the, the character of the Almighty that is reflected more in the, the like, the, the female soul than in the male soul. You know, talking, like, talking stereotypically for a moment here, we males are generally more goal-oriented. Um, let's say we're on vacation, you know, we have somewhere to be. We just want to get there, Right? never mind stopping to go to the bathroom or stopping to enjoy a beautiful sight we need to get to our destination so we can set up the camper or whatever right I mean that's stereotypically how guys are and I have to admit I'm like that um, when Genevieve and I were hiking the Israel National Trail in Israel it's a 600 mile trail um, there, I reached a point very soon where I realized I, we are not gonna hike this whole trail and if I try to push to get us to hike it I may kill my wife and I really love her like, I, I, I want to I wanna live a long life with her, right? So I, I realized very quickly, I don't want to kill my wife, so we're going to have to take this a little slower. And uh, it was, for me, it was, a, it was a, an exercise in patience, and it was a good exercise in patience. It wasn't like it made it harder for me, right? I was like, thank you, Abba, this is a good experience for me right now. And uh, it also helped me get out of that mindset that I can sometimes have, where I just set a goal and I and then I, I walk in and I go for that goal, and I miss the whole process. I, I, I've heard that often, women will be a little more process oriented. Like let's stop and enjoy the beautiful view. Let's uh, let's have a picnic instead of just snarfing our food down while we drive. You know, let's uh, let's um, let's like smell the roses while we go. And uh, I, I I see the, I see that principle in this. You know, you're not going to drive out all the nations right away. It's going to be a process. It'll be little by little. And I wonder if that doesn't apply to discipleship in general. I wonder if that doesn't apply to spiritual growth and Torah observance. Uh, you know, when we meet Mashiach, he doesn't drop the, drop the boom on us and say, okay, like, start doing everything right now today and stop doing all that stuff right now. Um, there's this side to him where he's, he's Erech HaPayim, he's patient. You know, um, the Father's gracious. And he doesn't he doesn't countenance sin. He, he hates sloppiness and lukewarmness, right? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, like, a, sometimes someone will come to a Messianic congregation, and uh, they're like, you know what? I'm beginning to realize there's a place for Torah in my life. You know, I'm beginning to understand this. And immediately, like, people will drop the boom on him, and they'll say, okay, got to gotta cut this, 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 and this, cold turkey. And uh, you're going to have to start doing this, 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 is this, right? And it's like it's people have this expert people who have been doing this for years, people who are comfortable with the Torah. You know, it's like a, a lifestyle in accordance with the mitzvah, It comes more naturally. People like that, you know, they've grown. They'll be like, okay, st- you have to be like me right away. You have to start doing all this stuff right away. And man, that's 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 not very friendly. I, I, if I if I if I dare to say it, that's not very seeker sensitive. And I don't mean secret center in a bad way, right? So, you know, like what I see in this passage is, like, there's room for steady growth. Look at, look at, look at uh, plants and in the plant world. Look at animals. I mean, nothing grows up overnight, almost. You know, it takes years and years of steady growth, of faithful expansion. And uh, perhaps that's how we're designed as disciples also. Maybe that's how we're designed as a a Messianic community. It's the Master who adds to our numbers daily. You know, not everybody all at once. He adds on a daily basis. And uh, I believe He's going to do that for us in the future. So um, that's a principle that we see. Look at at the life of our forefather in the faith, Avraham. I mean... You know, um, when he first answered the call, he was about 50 years old. And uh, did the Almighty just drop the whole covenant thing on him all at one time? It was, it was a process, wasn't it? It was a lifelong process. I mean, he came, to, he came to faith as an uncircumcised male. And it wasn't until five decades later that he was given the covenant of circumcision. So uh, that tells us something. That tells us, you know what, like, don't rush. Just enjoy the process. Uh, every commandment, as, as the Messiah leads you, let's say that he, he leads you to do a commandment that you've never done before, just bask in that. Like, really just, just enjoy the glow of that. Um, really go deep in the meaning of it. Discover the meaning of the commandment. Ask yourself what the principle is behind it. Why am I doing this? You know, and, and, and share that with people. You know, it doesn't have to be a cold turkey overnight thing in in my mind as long as we're steadily growing and uh, our hearts are in the right place so that's that's my approach okay um there are a couple of practical commandments in this parasha that i really like one of them is actually something that we can do every day <laughs> in uh, 8 verse 10 mike read this verse it says eat and be satisfied and bless yahweh your god for the good land he gave you and uh, in, in the Jewish world both in Yeshua's time and now that is what's done you eat until you're satisfied and then you stop and you take time to really thank him for the food thank him for his blessings thank him for the good land of Israel to which he is returning his people this is the idea uh, the, uh, there, there, are, there are traditional Jewish blessings said after the meal they're in my Dor there are actually four of them and uh, they take a couple minutes to pray if you've never prayed the traditional grace after meals from the Jewish prayer book I do recommend it I mean, you know, I don't know. Sometimes when we just pray from our own hearts, we end up kind of always saying the same thing. When we say grace, and just praying the Birkat Hamazon, praying the grace after meals, will really help you break out of that. It'll help you think more in terms of your covenant identity as a, a member of the people of Israel. It'll help you think historically about what the Almighty has done, not only for you as an individual, or for your family, but for us as a nation. So I, I recommend Birkat Hamazon. Um, I don't pray the whole thing every day, I admit. It's, it's long, and uh, but Genevieve and I did adapt a very short version that we like to say after every meal. If we can remember, it's really hard getting in the habit of thanking Him after you eat. Because it's true. You know, when we eat and we're satisfied and we're feeling great, that's when I forget God. That's when I just wander off and do my thing, you know. And uh, Moses talked about in this Parsha. But our version, oh, I'll just sing it for you. It's the traditional uh, formula, the beginning of a formula for bracha, And then it ends in all uh, Hamazon for the food and for the good land and it's just it goes and uh, you don't have to say amen because we didn't eat yet and i don't think any of us are satisfied on a stomacular level if i can coin that term okay so anyway that's one practical thing um I, I, I highly recommend getting into it if you haven't done that before. Take a second after you eat to thank him. Uh, then in 1019, we read that Yahweh loves the gear. He loves the foreigner, the, the stranger who moves to Israel, the proselyte, however you want to render that phrase. He loves that person. He provides food and clothing for that person. And then how does it end? So you love him too. So how could, how could we apply this in our lives? Uh, you know... Maybe, maybe some of us have experienced what it's like to be at a group where you're new and you're on the outside. You know, maybe if, at school or whatever you've, you've experienced cliques and you're just not part of any cliques. Uh, you know, Genevieve's told me uh, stories like that from high, her high school. Maybe that's the idea even. You know, for us as a congregation, for us as a movement, when we see someone who's new, go out of your way to show extra love to that person. Because God has extra love for that person, and you want to reflect that, because you're created in His image, you represent Mashiach. Um, you know, um, for 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 new people to our congregation, that's a great rule of thumb. Uh, also, for people who are just new to the Torah, who are just coming home, you know, just give give that kind of person some extra love. You know, whatever that whatever that means to you and to that person, um, I think that's a great practical application of the commandment. Okay, two minutes left. <laughs> 10 verse 16, Moses says, circumcise your hearts. It's not that in the Old Testament, circumcision was physical and outward, and in the New Testament, it's spiritual and inward. Au contraire, circumcision has always been both an outward physical sign and an inward spiritual reality, which is why Moses is talking here about the need to go deeper to experience the circumcision of the heart. He wasn't setting it in antithesis to physical circumcision, as is often erroneously done today. Okay, 9.26, Moses, again, addresses the Almighty as Adonai Yahweh, as my Master Yahweh, as my Lord Yahweh. And uh, we talked last week about how there's a lesson in that for all of us. I'll just share with you for a second, on a really practical level, kind of my, uh, my rule of thumb. This is my halacha, how I do it. Like, uh, you know, when I'm reading the scriptures, when I'm praying to him, when I'm uh, just talking about him, you know, I'll, I'll use the name of God. I cherish the use of the name of God. And I like to try and spice it up with his titles also. Um, when I'm when I'm praying traditional Jewish liturgy, if it says Adonai, I, I will pray Adonai, because I am uncomfortable with taking ancient Jewish liturgy that is so close to the heart of the people of Israel that has been hallowed by the blood of hundreds of thousands of martyrs. I am uncomfortable with just taking that as a new kid on the block and chopping it up and you know. So I mean I you know when it, let's say the, the blessing before bread, I don't sing Baruch Atah Yahweh Eloheinu, I sing Baruch Atah Adonai because that's what it says in the blessing. You know, that's the way that Jewish people have been doing it. And it's okay to call them Adonai. It's a respectful term. There's a place for that, right? So, I don't know. There was one time when I, like, I, I did the traditional blessing, Baruch at Adonai, you know, blessed are you, Lord our God. And someone actually asked me, like, do you still use God's name or do you still believe in that? And I was like, of course I do, right? But when it comes to traditional Jewish blessings, I, I think it's respectful to just use them as they are. That, that's my opinion, right? I'm not saying this is what you have to do, but this is my rule of thumb. And then when it comes to Christian songs, I already mentioned this. If it says Lord, I just call him Lord because it's, it's kind of hard, you know, to chop Christian songs up all the time and put in different words. And I don't know, I kind of end up forgetting about what I'm actually singing and I'm just trying to focus on saying the right words instead of the, the wrong words, that kind of thing, you know? So anyway, that, that's kind of my, my halachic rule of thumb and I, I offer that if that's helpful to you at all. Um, let's finish with this in the very beginning of this parasha it says that when we listen to his voice when we uh... when we like guard that covenant like uh... i almost want to say like vehemently you know what i mean like with a fierce devotion when we do that then that is how he will will respond to us he will guard us he will guard that covenant with us also Um, and it says that there are several things that he will that he will show us now let me ask you Is the Almighty... Is He gracious to everybody on the planet? Does He love everybody on the planet? Does He bless everybody on the planet? Yes, He does, doesn't He? But when you read the beginning of this Parsha, it says that He will... That is what He will be to you when you keep the covenant. So what that tells us is there must be a higher level of love and grace and blessing available to us when we are... when we are passionately listening to His voice and uh, keeping the covenant. And uh, sure enough... Don't we see that in the life of Stephen don't we see that in the book of Acts what we read these are people who who were experiencing a higher level of blessing on their lives a higher level of grace they were full of grace and uh, you know what the master loved them in a special way and I want to be one of those people that the master just loves in a special way you know what I mean I don't know I think it would be really special when my turn when my time comes to go to see him in a vision And to say, wow, he's not sitting at the Father's right hand. He's standing at the Father's right hand to welcome me. That was Stephen's experience. And uh, may it be each of ours. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would. Take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.